For us, our worship continues with the reading of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. For those who are able, please rise in honor of God's word as we read from Ecclesiastes, starting with verse 12. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said, about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly, until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Ziegler. I am one of the pastors here. Um, I am looking forward to being part of this uh, to participating in this series with you. Uh, but before we go any further to consider some of these questions together, I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, we uh, acknowledge before you our inadequacy and our, and our ignorance. Um, we come from different places. Some of us uh, feel like we know you but want to know you more. Others of us aren't sure what to think. And so we ask you for your help. We ask both this morning and in the coming weeks 
that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would help us to see what we cannot see on our own, that we might know the hope that we have in you and the purpose that we might have in this life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Brent has already uh, reminded us, we are beginning today a series that will go for the next seven weeks where we are exploring various questions, uh, questions that uh, many people have struggled with for centuries upon centuries. And the first one, the one that we're considering this morning, is does life have a purpose? Does life have a purpose? I'll tell you, when I was trying to think through this, it felt Like, this is such a big question, it's almost too big of a question. Um, Like, it feels almost overly philosophical. Like, this is not the kind of thing that when you're having, you know, lunch with a friend, you just decide casually, hey, what do you think? Does life have a purpose? Is there meaning to this life? I mean, that makes you feel kind of almost pretentious to ask, and it feels in some ways almost too big, right? Um, But as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that really this is not a question that we necessarily always ask at a conscious level, but it is a question that we feel. So, I think that much of our lives is oriented towards the next thing. That is, what we are motivated by, what directs us is the sense of something that's before us, the next thing. That next thing could be almost anything, right? The next thing could be I have a huge work project in a week's time and everything's about getting that done, or it could be about the vacation that's coming soon. The next thing could be this big house renovation we have, or, or it could be surgery that we're facing. The next thing could be something small, like the, the movie that's about to come out that we can't wait to see, or the next iPhone, or, or it could be something big, like the next major step in our life, going to college, getting a job, getting married, having kids, being retired. There's always a next thing, and, and for so much of our life, we are oriented towards just figuring out what to do towards the next thing. That's what motivates us. That's what gives us energy. And when we have energy, when things are going well, that works fairly well. It keeps us preoccupied. It keeps us interested. If if the next thing is something we're excited about and is achievable, our life feels fairly content. But there are some times where it's not that way, and we know this, right? There are some times where where we just start feeling the grind, where, where there is a weariness that can't be solved by a good night's sleep. Where we just feel, okay, there's another thing and there's another thing, and we start asking ourselves, why am I doing this? What's the point? Now, sometimes when we come to that point, we find ourselves making a major life change. We, we move to a different place or we change our job, but... But usually that doesn't end up really solving the problem. We find ourselves eventually again in that grind where we're just facing the next thing and we're wondering, why are we doing this? And what we're asking, whether we realize it consciously or not, is what is my purpose? What is the larger thing, the thing that I'm a part of that explains all of these different steps that I'm taking? Why am I doing this? Whether we ever acknowledge that question or not, I would say there's something fundamental about that question to who we are. It is something that is deeply at the core of us. We need a sense of meaning to be able to live well. 
I shared this story before, but there was an, an, in a nursing home, there was a time where a person was able to convince the nursing home director to bring a whole bunch of pets to the nursing home. We're talking dogs, we're talking cats, we're talking rabbits, we're talking parakeets. And the effect of these pets was profound. People who had not been walking, getting out of bed for months, suddenly got up to be able to walk a dog. People who they had assumed could no longer speak started speaking. The need for psychotropic drugs went down more than 33%, and even mortality rates decreased by 15%. It was like the whole nursing home experienced an awakening because of animals. And the explanation that the person who kind of began this process gave was we just have a fundamental need for a reason to live. We need purpose. Now, that's a fundamentally human thing. You don't, you don't see animals with that, right? Like, you don't see a cow who's been chewing grass suddenly lifting its head and wondering what the point of it all is. You don't see bees going, why am I making this honey again? Animals just go on and go on, but we don't. We, we feel the need for something bigger, right? We we feel the need for a meaning, a purpose, an explanation for why we move from one thing to the next to the next. It, it might sound all philosophical. What is my purpose? Is there a purpose in life? But it is enormously practical, and it's something all of us feel. And it is something that the Bible itself asks. This book that was just read from Ecclesiastes, um, certainly not the most cheerful of books you might have noticed, but it's focusing on specifically this question. When I look at this life, can I find purpose in it? And surprisingly, the answer that this person who calls himself the teacher comes to is that if I look at this life, in this life, I cannot find purpose to it. So, so what we have here is something spoken from the perspective of King Solomon. Uh, you might notice how that's, it begins. Our passage starts with the teacher. If you don't have your bulletins open, I'm going to be just kind of working through that passage, and I invite you to kind of look at it with me. And you see how it begins. I, the teacher, that's the name he gives to himself, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. There are some debates among scholars. Is this actually Solomon who's writing this, or is this Solomon's biographer who's writing from the perspective of Solomon? But regardless, he is speaking from the perspective of Solomon. He is telling Solomon's story. And if you're not familiar with Solomon, Solomon was the king who had everything going for him. We might think of like modern-day celebrities that feel like there's a lot going for them, like of George Clooney or, or Bill Gates or, you know, the Kardashians. Like, there's all these celebrities who have everything going for them. They have nothing compared to King Solomon. I mean, King Solomon was the great king of Israel. He established peace and prosperity for his nation, making them a superpower. He established this fantastic temple that is considered by some to be one of the great ancient wonders of the world. If you were looking for approval ratings, his approval ratings would have gone through the charts. He did so much, and he's so wise. I mean, even today, sometimes, it will, people will be spoken of someone having the wisdom of Solomon. Even his Proverbs, we continue to study today because of his famous wisdom. And he was incredibly wealthy. Riches that are really, in some ways, beyond our ability to comprehend. He was a person 
who had absolutely everything going for him. Whatever we might aspire to, whatever might motivate us, he has. And so he asks this question in the midst of it. What's the purpose? What's the meaning of this? Do you see that's how he says at the very beginning? I have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. And and here's his conclusion. Verse 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Have you ever had, uh, maybe because of it being in the wrong place in a dishwasher, like silverware get bent in a wrong shape? Have you ever tried straightening that silverware back up? Sometimes you can because the bend is just in the right place, but sometimes, at least for me, I find myself when I'm trying to bend it right again and ends up making another bend, and now I just have like this bumpy silverware, and there's like no way of flattening it. And, and Solomon's saying that's, that's the way this world is. It, it can't be straightened. There's always something that's breaking apart, and you fix one thing, something else happens. I mean, think about that. Like, we have to get, you know, like, oh, man, I have, my brakes need to be repaired. The brakes are repaired. Suddenly, we discover that our roof is leaking. We need to replace our roof, and that's taken care of. And, oh, now we've got a cavity that has to be a filling. There's always something, right? And, and we think about that in society at large. It seems like whenever there is a fix to something, a new technology, a new discovery, it always seems to create a new problem, and it's like we're playing whack-a-mole with whatever problem comes up, something else, whatever is crooked can't be straightened, he says. Now, the reason that's significant is if you were to survey, like if you were to go on the streets of Chicago and ask, what do you think gives your life meaning, gives your life purpose? Many, I would say maybe even a majority will say, my goal is just with my life to make things a little better in this world. Right? That's a common thing. I just, I want to make things at least a little bit better. And Solomon is saying, good luck with that. What's crooked can't be straightened. Whatever you do, as much effort as you give, is it really going to make any sort of difference? It's just a chasing after the wind. I mean, imagine that image. Imagine there's this big gust, and you're trying to catch it to kind of keep it from going forward. You want to hold on to it. Can you really affect the course of the wind? Of course you can't. And he says, that's what we're doing. When we're trying to make the world a better place, it's like we're holding on to the wind. We can't affect where the wind is going. We can't hold on to it. It's, it's futile. So that's discouraging, he says to himself. And so it, he moves from trying to figure out the purpose of what he's doing to just trying to understand, okay, if this is the case, how do I understand life? He, he kind of is seeking enlightenment. He says, I said to myself, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge, so I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge. He, have you ever wanted just to, for like a week to get away and to think and to try to understand what's going on? That's what he's doing. He's, he's trying to understand so he can sense where purpose is to be found. And yet, as he looks at life as honestly as he possibly can, with as much clarity as he possibly can, he is not encouraged. With much, he says, I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. 
As knowledge increases, grief increases. I mean, here's what he's saying. You know, most of our lives, we cope by distracting ourselves. We cope by, by just focusing on the next thing in front of us, on, on entertaining ourselves, on filling our lives with busyness. But if we really pull that away and just look honestly at this life, in this life, we will find ourselves sad. Because everything is finished ultimately by death. We might say, hey, you know, what gives my life meaning is my relationships, my family, but what happens when those relationships die? And they will. Or, or we might focus on what we're achieving, but, but two generations from now, when we're dead and gone, who will remember anything that we've accomplished? When you look at life as honestly as possible, he says, as knowledge increases, grief increases. So he does what is the natural conclusion that oftentimes we see people do when, they, when people have concluded, you know what, there really isn't any big purpose in life that I can see in this life, so I might as well enjoy it as much as I can, right? That's, that's the really common response. And so that's what he says. He says, I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. And in the following verses, he describes that pursuit, and he, more than anyone else, is able to enjoy himself to the full. He speaks of, you know, constructing mansions with a view of glorious gardens. He's able to enjoy all sorts of comfort. He has servants that can take care of anything that he doesn't want to have to deal with. He has all the great status symbols of the day so that people will respect him. He has all the things that will give him delight, expensive performers, great wine, good food, beautiful women. He, he kind of summarizes at the very end in verse 10. He says, I did not refuse myself any pleasure. He has everything. He has made himself as happy as he possibly can. Whatever we might say, hey, I would love that if only I could get that to make myself satisfied, he gets it. And yet, what is his conclusion? I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. And if we know just what we see when we look around, this probably doesn't surprise us. Think of the people that we know who seem to get everything, the great celebrities. How many of them actually seem to be happy? Would you really want to be the person who is always in the news, is having everything? It seems like their lives are constantly self-destructing. Because the reality is, we need more than just living for self. I mean, even, even the nursing home shows, even just an animal, something beyond ourselves, we need that if, if life is just about making ourselves happy, then it is empty, it is unsatisfying, it is un fulfilling. We need to belong to someone more than ourselves. We need to belong to someone or something, something to give us purpose. And, and Solomon can't find it, not in this life. He says, as conclusion, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Is there a purpose to life? Can I find purpose in this life? Solomon's conclusion is no. Well, that's a downer. 
can't imagine this is what you are, hey, I'm going to wake up and brave the snow and go to church this morning to hear that. Probably not what we're anticipating hearing. But before we kind of react against it, I, I just ask you first to kind of check his math. Like, think through his logic and see if you see any flaws with it. I mean, isn't he right that anything that we seek to do to make things better doesn't ultimately fix this world? That when we look at things, we see grief all around us, and the task of trying to make ourselves happy never works. There isn't anything that he is missing when he is looking at this life, I don't think. But he is excluding something, and that's, that's an important part to also understand. There's this repeated phrase that you see from the very beginning. It says, you know, verse 13, I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 14, do you notice, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. 2 verse 3 says, I could see what is good for people to do under heaven. And then what's the final conclusion? There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's repeating enough to show that this isn't just an accident, just a turn of phrase. He is meaning something specific. When he's speaking about under heaven or under the sun, he is, he is saying, let's just look at life the way that many of us sometimes are inclined to do, just as if this life is all that there is. Let's exclude from the equation anything beyond what we can experience in a clear way. Let's remove from the equation God. Let's remove from the equation transcendence. Let's remove from the equation life beyond this life. Let's only look at life under the sun in this context. And if we do, if that's all we see, let me tell you, you will not find purpose. I certainly can't find it. And he's right. There's a, a quote from the writer C.S. Lewis that I think gets near the heart of this. Um, he writes, Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There is always something we grasped at in that first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It has turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. And that's what the teacher is saying in Ecclesiastes. If we're looking at life under the sun and we're seeking to find meaning and finding purpose, it always evades us. But that's not the only thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes has to say. If we were to look at the very end of the book, he, he hints about an answer beyond this. He speaks of, of the meaningfulness of fearing God. 
And he hints that when we think of life beyond just this life, what might happen beyond death, that maybe their meaning actually can be found. And what is hinted at by the writer of the Ecclesiastes becomes explicit in the New Testament after the coming of Jesus. So here's what the New Testament tells us about this topic. The New Testament says that if the gospel is true, and I realize for some of us that might not be a settled matter, and that's something that we're going to want to continue to think about in the coming weeks, but let's just say if the gospel is true, then life does have meaning and purpose. If Jesus truly has died and risen from the dead, then all that makes this life purposeless is reversed, and meaning is possible. That's what the New Testament teaches us. Yes, there is still death, and death still rips apart our hearts whenever we see it or think about it. But the New Testament says Jesus has conquered death, and that for all who place their hope in Jesus, there is life beyond this life. Yes, this world, as the New Testament says, is subject to futility. That where it right now is crooked, cannot be straightened. But, but the New Testament says Jesus, when he went to death and he was resurrected, he didn't just defeat death, he defeated evil itself, and there will come a day when what is, when what is crooked can be straightened, when the oppressed will be vindicated, when suffering will be removed. And so what that means is that even right now has significance. Even right now, as we are thinking together about these questions, if, we, if the New Testament is true and the gospel is true, the stuff that we're talking about and the consequences about what we do with it will have eternal significance. And what's more, what you do tomorrow can have eternal significance. You can be giving yourself to serving others who will be with you for all eternity. You can give yourself to seeking to please the God of the universe, and He can be pleased. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. And he's saying this after he said this is, that Jesus has risen from the dead. Be steadfast, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then what we do in seeking to serve God is not in vain. It has meaning. But the claims of the gospel go even deeper than that, and even more significantly than that. What the, what the gospel tells us is that if Jesus truly died and rose from the dead, then you are freed. You are freed from purposelessness because you are freed from slavery to self. The Bible teaches that because Jesus died and rose again, those who trust Him no longer belong to themselves. And that is good news because it is a burdensome thing to belong just to ourselves. It is a burdensome thing just to live for ourselves. 
And scripture teaches that when Jesus died and rose again, he, he freed us from slavery and he bought us with his precious blood so that now we belong to Christ. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. There is a purpose to life. There is. There is a purpose to life, and it is this, to live for the one who loves us, to live for the one who saved us, to have a life that is devoted to living for God, living for Christ, serving Him and obeying Him and all that He calls us to. And here's what He calls us to, to love the world, to show the world the love of God that they might experience the love of Jesus. That is the purpose that we have. So, there's uh, a movie probably some of us have seen, uh, Chariots of Fire. I know it's an old movie, 1981, but it won an Oscar. It was a great movie. And if you've seen it, you'll know that there are, are two main characters that it's telling the story of, two Olympians. They actually have a lot in common because they're both sprinters, they're both English, they're both going to be competing in the same Olympics, but there's a lot that's different about them. So, so one of them is, is Harold Abrams, and, and he seems to have this this kind of desperation, he has to, he has to win. And every time he loses, it tears him apart. It feels like this is the only way that he can get significance. In fact, he says in the scene shortly before he competes in the finals of the Olympics, he says, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor that's four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. And, and if you've seen the movie, I think it makes a really interesting choice. When he, when he runs and, and when he wins, it, it doesn't feel triumphant. If anything, it just kind of feels like a relief. The music is ambiguous. It feels almost anticlimactic. And I think you're supposed to be left wondering, okay, so what next? Was this enough? Did this satisfy his longing to define himself? And the answer is no. His life is lived under the sun, and he is chasing after the wind. But there, there's another figure, uh, Eric Little, uh, who is a very different person. He's, he's a son of a Scottish missionary, and it's not even clear for him as he's going whether it's even a good idea for him to compete because his life is about something bigger until his dad tells him, uh, you can praise God by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. Run in God's name and let the world stand back and wonder. And so he does. And in that final scene where he is running the 400 meters and his head is tipped back and there's just this joy that you sense that is, that is coming and you're wondering why is he so happy? He, in the background you hear this, the words that he said earlier. He says to his sister earlier, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I believe that this is what we were created to experience by God. I believe that we were created to have such a deep sense of purpose, such a deep sense that we belong to Christ Jesus that when we are doing the dishes, when we are working, 
when we are with our family, when we are running, whatever it is we're doing, we are experiencing God's pleasure. And it's my desire as we move through these coming weeks that you can see that clearly with me and that you can taste that pleasure with me. But for now, I invite us to just kind of pause and um, to respond in, in, in silence. For some of you, maybe this is a good time for praying, for even confessing if there's things that you've realized God has been showing you, or for if you don't still know where you stand, to so just kind of consider and think and maybe ask God to show himself to you. And we'll spend a couple minutes in silence, and then I'll lead us in prayer subsequently. So would you please join with me in quiet prayer. Father, as we come to you in prayer, um, many of us, including myself, uh, confess to you that we so often forget that we belong to you and that our lives, our purpose, the meaning you have given us is to serve you and to honor you. Father, we ask for your forgiveness knowing that you are forgiving God through Christ Jesus. We ask that you would strengthen our awareness of that. And Father, we also pray, even now for those who here are, are trying to understand, are seeking to know the answer to this and other questions, we pray, Lord, that you would make yourself clear, that you would lead us all into the joy that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So God's word reminds us of the truth. It says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and you have been redeemed. Thanks be to God.